Welcome back to LP Parsha Podcast, your Torah portion podcast. Each month we'll do a bird's eye view of all the weekly Torah portions, then we'll zoom in on a passage or theme that catches our eye, and then we'll connect it back to Judaism and our own lives. This month we'll be covering Yidro, Mishpatim, Teruma, and Tetzaveh. As always, I'm one of your co-hosts, Paul Seleka, and as always, I'm joined by... Aaron Rotenberg. Hey, Paul. Hey, how's it going? It's going well. I got to give Aaron some credit because, you know, you have a true friend when I texted Aaron on my way over here saying, I need you to make me a coffee because <laughs> you know, were Canadian and it doesn't feel right to pose. But I was like, I was running around all day and I needed a coffee. And Aaron, mm. despite, I guess it sounds like you don't drink coffee. Not really, <laughs> but I was happy to be able to provide. Wow. Very, uh, what a mensch on this bench. Enjoy. And hope it gives us energy for our discussion ahead. Yeah, I hope so, you know. And what do you have going on this week? I hear you're going to Denver tomorrow. That's true. Um, I'm going with my Aleph rabbinical school mm-hmm. stuff. And I'm actually graduating. Of not getting my ordination, but I'm completing an Earth-based Judaism program. So I'm going to have a ceremony for that. I'm going to cheer on my friends and classmates as they get their smicha, which is the word for ordination. So some people are getting ordained today, uh, tomorrow. Yes. Interesting. So this is like a certificate you procured while pursuing your smicha? Yeah. Two for one. Okay. Well, that makes sense, you know. Yeah. Uh, A lot of institutions do that. So so what are you going to be doing with your Earth-based Judaism credential? Getting closer to the earth. (laughs) Nothing nothing practical. Just, uh, well, I I hope there are ways that I'll be able to use it. I think it has helped me like think and conceive of Judaism in different terms and ways. So really? I think it will infuse all of my uh, Jewish roles and leadership. In what way? In what way? Yeah, let's hear one example at least to make sure that it's legit. <laughs> um, like one small way mm-hmm. is that I did feel like... I liked davening and doing spiritual practice like indoors where the setting is kind of more set and controllable. Mm-hmm. And like the program has encouraged and I've like deepened in doing spiritual practices outdoors, like heat bodhidudes, mm-hmm. like having conversations with, with God, where the framing is like you're supposed to let the trees and the grasses join in in your prayers. Oh, yeah. It's like that old Hasidic story, you know? Yeah. So, right, there's Hasidic. The one about the boy that leaves during davening and his father follows him to the woods. You know that one? What happens? (laughs) I don't know. It's a really, really, really short story. Um, I'll try to tell it quickly. I first heard this from... um, Who was the director of Shoresh before she left? Alison Cooper? Risa. Risa, yeah. Risa Cooper. Uh-huh. Allison Cooper, that must be someone else. No, that's um, I think her full I first, first heard this from her. Like she just said that uh there was once upon a time, probably in Belarus, I guess, there was a man who noticed that his son was always leaving during Silent Amida, the standing prayer. Mm-hmm. Um so one day he follows his son, he sees his son's gone to, son's gone to the woods during the Amida, and he's like, Son, why did you go to the woods? Like, don't you know that God is everywhere? And his son is like, Well, I'm not the same everywhere. Mm. Um, so that's the story I thought you were alluding to. Um, you've never heard that one? 
I don't think so. No, that's so strange. I thought, like, if anyone's heard this story, it's Aaron Rotenberg. That's a great one for me, though. I'll use it. (laughs) And then also speaking of Hasidic dynasties as well, I just had another little funny thing happen to me this week. Hmm. Um, As you folks know who listen to the podcast, I get a lot of my summaries from Chabad.org. And I say that because it's important to give Hmm. Hmm. credit or what I'm trying to say. Um, Yeah. It's been so long since I've been a student. Like I'm doing a reference. I'm referencing that I got it from them. And they have this great little thing called the Torah portion in a nutshell. Mm. Um, and that's usually where I get a lot of my summaries from. I look at those. I kind of gloss over them and summarize their summaries. And then one day I got a newsletter. I'm on all the newsletters from most of the Jewish communities in mm-hmm. Toronto, as Aaron and I were talking before we jumped on. And then like this one newsletter was on said like, this week's Parsha in a nutshell. And I was like, did they get this from Chabad.org? And it was from my local Chabad. So <laughs> clearly it must have been, it makes sense that they would use the website of their of their people. Huh. Um, so I just thought that was funny that, uh, you know, my local Chabad in the beaches was uh, also using also this in their newsletter. Yeah. Uh, copy paste probably, which, you know, makes sense because it's for people to use. So I appreciate you know, about a valuable resource, valuable resources. And speaking of valuable resources, um, oh. the Torah is always the Torah is a, also, yeah. a resource, a source of water, source of life. Mm. Um, why don't I give it a bit of a stab as to kind of summarizing these parshiot and maybe, um, Aaron, I'm going to challenge you to think of where, where, where you want us to deep dive because, uh, I didn't, it. Yeah. <laughs> usually, you know, as much as Aaron finds our deep dives, I always have a backup in case he's forgot. Like, not in case something doesn't happen organically, I always have a backup. But there's no backup today. So this is going to be really like, uh, hopefully the tour will have something for us to dive into in these five parshiots. I'm sure. And if not, we will. in these four, um, then we'll be in trouble. So these parshiot, uh, this first starts uh, with the children of Israel uh, camping on Mount Sinai. And they talk about them being the chosen people. And then uh, they are going to be given the Torah and there's a lot of pomp and circumstance um, and God proclaims the 10 commandments and he goes through some of them. Normally I gloss over them, but some of these are important. Uh, Not to worship idols, to keep Shabbat, to honor your parents, not to murder, not to adulter, not to steal, not to lie or covet. and apparently the people thought that this was kind of an intense list of rules. Uh, and then they go into more laws dealing with loans and kidnapping, uh, mistreatment of foreigners. Uh, and they talk a little bit about, I think there's a little bit about Avodah Zarah, like not following kind of certain practices of other religions. Uh-huh. Um, and then moving on to the next portion uh, then they contribute materials um, uh, for a sanctuary, the Mishkan. And then there's more details about the sanctuary that I won't necessarily get into. But there is something I've been thinking about about the sanctuary that we can get to later. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there is the eternal flame uh, that they put together. And then there's the garments of the Kohanim. This is what I want to talk about. The things that are on the garments of the Kohanim. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Kohen Gadol, and then uh, some of Aaron's sons go into the priesthood. And that is kind of a, a broad strokes overview 
of Yidro Mishpatim Teruma and Tetzaza. So, you know, Great. there's a lot there when it comes to, I guess, obviously the commandments, uh, the people of Israel, mm-hmm. um, Moses, Aaron. So, you know, just kind of, you know, every time we read the Torah, we're different people. Is there anything, you know, just where you are in your life right now that jumped out to you from some of the summary? Well, one of the pieces that I always like to look back on mm-hmm. is this revelation piece that you mentioned yeah. at the beginning that happens in Parshat Yitro, uh, the moment at Mount Sinai. Mm-hmm. And that used to be when I first became, quote unquote, religious, oh. it was connected to framing an argument around this piece of revelation at Sinai. Mm-hmm. And there are people, there are people going around. Uh, some rabbis who I knew like pointed to this, said, oh, Judaism has to be true because we have this record of a mass of people, thousands of people saying that God spoke to them. Yeah. And how can you falsify this sort of thing? And I was like, oh, you must, that must be true. Really? And like that argument. How old were you? I was in high school. So. Okay. This wasn't like last year. No, this was uh, a while ago. Being 37 now, right? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Two years older than me. Uh, so I guess as a teenager, I'm sure there were other pieces, there were other reasons why I was also drawn into being open to an argument like this. But like this felt like a central thing. And my approach to it has changed over the years and it's mm. interesting like coming back to it and seeing how i feel about this this moment and we spoke about last time that there is a sort of flow in the entire book of exodus that's right starting with slavery and then mm-hmm. liberation that leads to this moment of revelation and this revelation is like a piece that seems to be proving or emphasizing the relationship between god and the people of israel and then what you described afterwards, like what sort of happens is the rest of the book of Exodus opens up into being more of a law code. Mm-hmm. Saying, oh, well, if there's this connection that we've established where God frees the people and then shares this teaching in Torah, here's more information from this divine source about how to live your life properly. But there it does feel like this revelation piece is sort of a linchpin. So I did definitely think about it as a linchpin. And I, there are pieces that I appreciate it. And every year when I read it again and read it again in advance of this, it's just like such a strange section. Yeah. And it's like very unclear. Like it's just not so. What's unclear to you about it? Just the narrative kind of feels like filled with static or something. Mm-hmm. It's not so clear that just like Moses goes up and then God's. I like even this thing that Moses goes up in in these passages, like Moses goes up and goes down and then has a conversation with God and God's just like, oh, actually tell the people not to not to come up. Mm-hmm. And there's all this stuff that feels like a strange back and forth. And then it kind of feels like it cuts and then it says, and then God said, and then it gives the Ten Commandments and then it moves on. It does it feel a little feel, patchy, right? Like, um, it's interesting because, you know, we talked about how Genesis was the story of a family and Exodus mm-hmm. is the story of a people. 
But this, these chapters almost seem like they're kind of a bit of a pastiche of the later books to do with the law. It almost seems yeah. like some of that was brought in here almost as like a teaser for the later things. And it's interesting too, you talk a little bit about the, the revelation at Sinai as being a key turning point in your religious identity. Mm-hmm. I feel like that must be not, you must not be alone in that. I feel like this must be a recurring thing. I've heard a lot of people say that, I think there's so many, aren't there a lot of folk stories and mm-hmm. Midrashim about mm-hmm. Mount Sinai? One I was thinking of is that every Jew that's ever existed was there. So Jews of past and present and future. Um, Because I think there's, wasn't there like a dating website? Saw you at Sinai? Uh, (laughs) It's playing on that idea that everybody was there. Yeah. So I think that's one kind of really beautiful part of uh, maybe a people's-based religion. Because Judaism is not really a universalist religion. It's kind of a a particularist religion, I think. Well, there's Uh, universalist aspects to it too that we can always bring out. And a few other uh, things I'd heard about Sinai was um, just, I think a lot, I learned a lot of these things at Shavuot because Shavuot, the festival of weeks, obviously is about the receiving of Torah Mount Sinai. So when I go mm-hmm. to Shavuot learning events, they obviously talk about receiving the Torah. It comes up a lot. I recall mm-hmm. there being one, one Midrash or something where the, the Mount Sinai burst into flowers, I believe. Uh, that sounds yeah, right. Yeah. Uh-huh. But the one that I thought was really funny that I had heard was that um, on Mount Sinai, apparently like uh, people knew that they were going to receive dietary laws. Do you know this one? <laughs> Stop me if you heard this one. <laughs> I know. I'm like, wow, maybe Aaron's not a rabbi. Like he didn't know two things I mentioned. You know, a lot um, of things, Paul. <laughs> I know, one time I'm going to sidebar really quickly. One time I was talking to a rabbi I was talking about, the Jews of Kaifeng, which is an area in China, that's a Jewish community that's since mostly disappeared, but there's some small resurgence. And this rabbi didn't know about it. And I was like, <laughs> so upset with her. It's like, you don't know about the Jews of Kaifeng? She's like, I don't know everything, um, which is totally fair. Like, uh, But anyways, coming back to Mount Sinai, uh, apparently this, this Agada, this story, this exeg- exegetical story I heard was that they knew they were going to receive dietary restrictions against meat and dairy. So mm-hmm. they all decided to eat like uh, as much dairy as they could just so they could mm-hmm. get ahead of kind of not being able to mix meat and dairy. And that's why people eat cheesecake uh, at Shavuot, yeah. you know. So um, that was one of the stories I'd heard about Shavuot and dairy products. Um, so I just yeah. thought it was interesting, too, with like and to be honest, like I've actually been moved by the Mount Sinai narrative, too. So. I think you're probably not alone in feeling some some something moves us about that story a little bit, you know? Yeah. And I do like the narrative piece and like mm. thinking about how it fits in literarily and all these. I am moved by it. And it's just not the central thing for me anymore. I think we also spoke about this last year. That there's a connection between the personal revelation that Moses gets at the burning bush mm-hmm. And then the communal uh, revelation that he guides the people to at Mount Sinai. I was talking to our friend and your neighbor, Avi Kramer, about symbols in the Torah the other week. We were discussing this uh, connection between the Hebrew word sne, which is the kind of bush that is on fire Mm -hmm. when Moses sees the burning bush, and Sinai, 
Sne and Sinai, they have like, they share Hebrew letters and I think are referencing each other. And we kind of, and it says that Moses sees this burning bush at Horev, which is the mm-hmm. site of Sinai. And right, then I moved about those pieces about like how a leader like goes through personal work and exploration and is able to then share that with other people. Mm-hmm. Things go from the personal to the the communal, mm-hmm. like, uh, and just I guess the challenges that come with it as well. Because when you have a personal revelation, you're the only one who needs to act on it. But a group revelation now requires the cooperation of so many people. Yeah, it's interesting too because I was actually rereading the the graphic novel version of Sapiens by Noah Yuval Harari. Harari. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd be surprised. There's graphic novels of a lot of the things you've read. So if you want an easy way to read something, I was just rereading it. And they talked about how um, fiction, and I don't mean this to disparage religion, but fiction is an important part of all human societies because it allows us to organize ourselves. Um, mm-hmm. So if we have this quote-unquote fiction of Mount Sinai, we can all live by certain rules. Like if everyone's murdering each other, and but now we're saying God told us not to murder each other, this fiction allows us some sort of social cohesion. Um, yeah. So they talked a little bit about, they, they alluded to um, the Ten Commandments in Mount Sinai uh, in that book a little bit. But then they even say, I know I said I won't talk about politics, but maybe just a little bit. Like, I think a lot about Al- Alberta, <laughs> the <laughs> province in Canada, that wanted to pull out its pension out of the pension plan for Canada. I was like, the concept of Alberta is a fiction. Like there's just, it's just part of this land of Canada, which also is a fiction. Like it's all a concept, (laughs) but you know, Danielle Smith feels like her piece of the land is more productive than other pieces of the land. And thus this part of the land must withdraw itself. But like, um, you know, I don't agree with her, uh, palliative CPP for, because I think it really hurts the mobility of Canadians in a way. (laughs) Um, But I just thought a lot about how uh, maybe fiction is the wrong word to use because it means kind of very much like uh, made up. I guess the idea of like a abstract concept or narrative like Mm -hmm. is important for us as people to organize ourselves. Um, So both the fiction to kind of organize ourselves over the laws, but also the fiction to kind of move you like this fiction has moved us like this story of Mount Sinai and impacted our religiosity at different times in our lives. But also this fiction gives us rules to follow. Yeah. Um, rules that are not given, you know, like these, we assume that everyone's not going to murder each other, but clearly there was a time where people did. Um, and these rules mm-hmm. were important at some point, you know? Yeah. I think that's, that sounds right to me that we understand ourselves often through stories and broader narratives. And that is a lot of what I get from studying and learning Torah. It just feels like part of, part of my own story. And I was trying to see what meaning it can bring to us this week or this discussion. Yeah, so you kind of see yourself as part of the unfolding story of Torah. Yeah. And I think there is a way in which I even feel inclined to do that thing that you said of seeing myself Mm -hmm. standing at Sinai and like, right, finding like what messages there are for me, imagining myself in these stories of, of our ancestors. The other piece that I want to explore that you mentioned mm-hmm. is this move from Sinai to the tabernacle, the yeah. Mishkan. And it feels like there's also an interesting connection there of like, which to me speaks about like spiritual highs, which feels like the moment at Sinai was 
this amazing thing where, like the Midrash you quoted, the mountain bursts into flowers. Mm -hmm. Literally, what it says in the text is that it bursts into flames. Huh? There's fire and smoke. So there's some like ex extreme things happening that makes a big impression on the people. But that's only one moment in time, right? Then how do you carry this connection to the divine with you? And the guy says, yeah, God says, yeah, that was that moment. And now we're going to move into this mode of having something more sustainable, which mm -hmm. is the tabernacle and these laws and rules for like bringing something special into everyday life. Like the begin the building has begun. Like uh, mm -hmm. there was the family, then there's the people, then there's the laws. And now we need to build, to make something to uh, the tabernacle. It really makes me kind of think a little bit about, uh, I was listening to podcasts recently. I don't remember which one, but they talked a little bit how our generation, maybe this is a bit of a reactionary take. Mm -hmm. Our generation has kind of lost the concept of building. We're more of the criticizers, like, um, mm -hmm. but the building is the difficult part, you know, of a society and of a people and of an organization. So like, uh, and although you see criticism, I guess, is a big part of Exodus and some of the other books. Uh, complaining comes up a lot. So kind of, I guess, always dealing with the, the interplay of complaints uh, versus the moving forward as well. But yeah, I guess it's kind of, and how would these things be even possible, I guess, without narrative, right? Why would people be drawn to building a tabernacle if not that they were inspired by by their creator, you know, um, and creating the, the Mishkan? Uh, this was the moving, yeah. I guess, home place of God, the tent. Yeah. Not the one we find eventually in a stable static temple. Right. Or the narrative in the biblical text is that the movable tabernacle becomes the uh, planted in one place in Jerusalem and that becomes the temple. Mm -hmm. So it's like the same setup uh, that just finds its home there. But kind of also adds to that whole movement as well that there's uh, the tabernacle that's built and then eventually it has a home. So I think we can kind of see that also mm -hmm. as part of that narrative. Um, I guess the only other thing, this isn't so meaningful religiously, but I was like, I always like the name Jasper. And I was like, I wonder if I could connect the name Jasper to Judaism. And I feel like one of oh, the stones yeah. uh -huh. in the breastplate was Jasper. Um, although like whenever I try to find it in the Tanakh, I always have a hard fi time finding it, but I was always like, this is me being very uh, anachronistic. Like, mm. I like the name Jasper. Is there a way to make it, it Jewish? And I think it is in the Tanakh. And I think Jasper comes from the Hebrew Yashba, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so I think because like how sapphire comes from Sapir, to my understanding. Huh? Um, uh -huh. So some English words, believe it or not, come from Hebrew. Um, yeah. All right. I like about... One of the many things I like about the biblical text is that there is a lot of specificity around things. And then as you like mentioned, there's all these details about building the tabernacle, like mm. the colors of threads and materials that they use, and then about the priestly vestments, right? Like the materials, what are the spices that they use for anointing oils and for the incense? Mm. And also this, you're referring to the priests, the high priest's breastplate that has 12 stones. Mm -hmm. And then it mentions what, all 12 of the stones are. So it's like being very specific, but in ancient Hebrew. And for some of these things, we have like, like lost the tradition and we don't exactly know 
what thing it's referring to. So mm-hmm. it has to be disagreed the right word. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I did find the uh, the line Exodus twenty eight seventeen. It says, mm-hmm. "And thou shalt set in its settings of stones even four rows of stones." This is from Safaria. The first row shall be ruby, uh, chrysal- chrysolite, and a beryl, and that shall be the first row. The second row shall be a turquoise, a sapphire, and a diamond, and a third row a ligur, an agate, and a jasper. Mm. Um, and then fail. I think this one doesn't use the word. Does this use the word? Uh, Exodus twenty-eight nineteen? What do you? What do they use for jasper here? Or it's in tw- uh, verse twenty. Verse twenty. Oh, I see. In uh, the fourth row. In the fourth row, an emerald, a shoham, and a jade, and they shall be enclosed in settings of gold. Oh, so the what they translated in that translation is the word yashpe, yashfe, yashfe, which here I have as jasper in the JPS translation. Yeah, this is actually interesting because yeah, on row nine, uh, on verse nineteen in Safaria. They say Jasper in the English, but in the Hebrew, I don't see any word that alludes to it. But mm-hmm. on 20, I do see the word the uh, Yashpe, like the Ve being, I guess, and. Mm-hmm. Um, I do know some Hebrew. <laughs> <laughs> you know lots of Hebrew. Yeah. But yeah, so that's right, exactly speaking to that, that we know these words and we think that they might refer to these stones, but don't necessarily know this agreement about which Hebrew word means what. Uh, so yeah, what do we do with that? Yeah. We reinterpret it and come up with all these different stories about what, what they are. We reconstruct. <laughs> but yeah, I just thought that was kind of a, I think just kind of a fun thing for me to think about while we were on this passage, specifically thinking about the name Jasper and how I could connect it back to Judaism and our own lives. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's like, a, if I were to have a child, Bezrat Hashem, if it were male, I think I would probably pick Jasper as a name. So I was like, oh, like. Uh, I like it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Because then also, like, um, you know, in English-speaking countries, it's common for either people's Hebrew name is their first name, some variation, or it's their middle name, or sometimes it's completely unrelated. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, you know, less names is better. Uh, so I was like, wouldn't it be great to just, like, if Jasper were already a Hebrew name somehow? Mm. Um, so it is if you kind of close your eyes and squint a little. beautiful. Yeah, yeah. There it is. <laughs> <laughs> there it is, right on the breastplate. Although if it's verse 19 or verse 20... That's for up for discussion. Up for discussion. But I feel like we've kind of done some interesting reflecting here where we talked a little bit about, I guess, the power of narrative and how narrative is a power for a people. Like the narrative of Mount Sinai impacted your religiosity, but narrative itself helps us stick to laws and helps us work together to create things such as the Mishkan, uh, which eventually will become the temple. Um, and just kind of reflected it back to where we're at. So I think that's kind of a, a nice sort of thread to pull apart from this. What do you think? I think that's great. Okay. Perfect. So beautiful to keep moving through this, these stories and finding our way. Yeah. Finding our way through this desert, this mm. mead bar. Um, so I guess that's kind of, it seems like a good place to land. So as always, I've been Paul Seleka. And I'm Aaron Rotenberg. Until next time, friends.